This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. We are excited to announce that there is a new way for people who do not have smartphones or who prefer to use their computers to listen to the Return to Order Moment. All you need to do is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org. When you get there, you will see the Return to Order logo at the top of the page. Immediately under that is a dark yellow bar with eight buttons. The second from the right is Podcast. Simply click on that word and you will go directly to our podcast page. The newest episode will always be the first on the list. Click the little arrowhead under the title, sit back, and listen. We publish a new podcast every week at midnight when Tuesday becomes Wednesday. So, if you go to the website every week, it is easy to hear our latest episode. We can all fight to keep Christianity in American culture. Over the centuries, many great saints have fought for the church. Some, like St. Paul, spent years on missionary voyages to plant Christianity in new lands. Others, like Saints Bernadette and Therese, the little flower, spent their adult lives secluded in convents. It is good to reflect on the lives of saints and to choose one or two for special devotion. However, focusing on the saints can also become kind of a trap. Their virtues are so great, we can despair of ever reaching their level. It is vitally important for all Christians to reflect on the fact that God has a unique plan for their lives. You and I were born when we were because God's plan for each of us can only be accomplished in this generation. None of us can doubt that there is much work to be done. Our world is broken, and God wants us to help Him to reclaim it. Today's episode of the Return to Order Moment focuses on people who are doing God's work as witnesses to this time and place. We begin with an essay by Norman Fulkerson, which reflects upon the Supreme Court's decision that a high school football coach had the right to pray in public. The essay is entitled, It's Time for Americans to Pray on the 50-Yard Line. The recent Supreme Court decision, Kennedy v. Bremerton School District, ruled in favor of Coach Joe Kennedy's right to pray in public. It should encourage conservative Americans and also lead us to follow the example of a man who dared to pray on the 50-yard line. Let's begin with a short recap of his story for those who did not follow the drama. Joe Kennedy spent 18 years of his life as a Marine before he took up the job as head coach for the Bremerton High School varsity football team in Bremerton, Washington. He made a promise to give thanks to God for what his players accomplished on the field, win or lose. It started as a private act, but quickly got the attention of others. Players and students asked if they could join him. The school authorities were not happy with the development. They told him to cease and desist, which he did. However, On the drive home after the next came, Kennedy felt bad because he had broken the promise that he had made to God. He turned his car around and drove back to the field. After everyone left the stadium, he made his way to the 50-yard line. Then he took a knee, not like Colin Kaepernick, but to give thanks to his Creator. 
Coach Kennedy then continued the same practice at subsequent games, but only after players had left the field. Once again, however, he was joined by others. He was eventually placed on paid administrative leave because he, quote, engaged in overt, public, and demonstrative religious conduct while still on duty as an assistant coach, unquote. When fired for this action, millions of Americans took note. Indeed, the prayers of Coach Kennedy resonated with like-minded people around the world. Why such drastic measures? It was not that he dared to pray in public, but that it had an effect on others. Coach Kennedy's case is important because he represented not just himself, but became an example for others. He is not alone. There are many more Coach Kennedys and many 50-yard lines in America today. In 2016, Chike Bunam was a student at Georgia Gwinnett College in Lawrenceville, Georgia. Unlike Kennedy, who was merely praying privately, Chike was openly proselytizing by handing out religious pamphlets and discussing God on campus. School officials quickly informed the student that if he wanted to continue his conversations, he would have to reserve a spot in one of the school's two speech zones. The Alliance Defending Freedom reports that, quote, combined, the two spaces made up about 0.0015% of campus. If the entire campus were the size of a football field, these speech zones, the only places students could exercise their First Amendment rights, would be the size of a piece of notebook paper, unquote. Chike complied with the secularist rules and reserved time in one of the speech zones. It was his version of praying on the 50-yard line. However, the police shut him down because someone complained. It appears the school's Student Code of Conduct manual states that a person's speech can be suppressed if some snowflake does not like the message. This setback did not dissuade this principled student. He filed a lawsuit against the school, which also went to the Supreme Court. The school was forced to amend its free speech policy and shell out $800,000 for the students' legal fees. These two cases show how Americans with deeply held religious convictions didn't back down from the right to express them publicly. While these are high-profile cases, many other examples fly below the radar. One example is a 15-year-old young lady who was harassed on a plane because she was praying her rosary. Mariana had just attended the annual National Conference of the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP, in Pennsylvania. On her flight home to Kansas, she decided to pray her rosary. The man next to her took offense. He was an atheist and had the audacity to demand she stop praying because he said, It offends me. This bully picked the wrong person. Mariana had just been energized by the weekend conference and was not about to be pushed around. The 
I won't, she responded. Then, like a spoiled child, the atheist pressed the call button. When the stewardess arrived, he asked her to make the young lady stop praying. We can only imagine this flight attendant's surprise at the comical scene. I can't do that, the stewardess said. She has a right to pray. For the rest of the flight, this nice young lady continued to pray on her 50-yard line, much to the chagrin of the non-believer. Indeed, TFP members and supporters commonly pray the rosary in public. They also say grace before and after meals in restaurants. People often thank us for being examples or even submit prayer requests. Such a request came to me in Florida's Orlando International Airport. While waiting for some fellow TFP members to arrive, I decided to pray my rosary. Suddenly, a woman tapped me on the arm and with the voice of anguish asked, Could you please pray for me? She was traveling with her husband and was experiencing a five-hour flight delay. I noticed a profound sorrow. Tears welled up in her eyes and she quickly added, Could you also pray for my father? He just died. This very touching scene only happened because she could see I was praying and might provide needed help from above. I promised to pray for her father, and we parted ways. These are but a few examples of Americans who are not afraid to profess their faith publicly, even when persecuted by non-believers. The case of Coach Kennedy is an example of the only-in-America paradox, which I have highlighted in articles over the years. It is a paradoxical case, because most people would not expect such a reaction in a country whose current ruling party voted twice to remove the mention of God from its party platform. However, in this country that appears to be so unreligious, there are many people who are not ashamed of their belief in God. Our country is going through great turmoil, and we need God's help. Therefore, now is not the time to hide our Catholic faith, but to express it in public. We need to do like Coach Kennedy, even in the middle of a football field. Indeed, it is time for Americans to pray on the 50-yard line. One of the most obvious battles in modern America is the battle against transgender tyranny. It threatens our children, families, schools, churches, and many other institutions. Mr. Michael Haynes describes the fight against this tyranny in his essay, Supreme Court's Role Ruling Being Used to Fight Transgender Ideology. The long-term effects of the U.S. Supreme Court's recent overturning of Roe v. Wade continues to unfold. Pro-family lawyers are now using the historic ruling to argue against so-called transitioning treatments for children. The Supreme Court's ruling in the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization case is causing consternation amongst pro-abortion advocates for its overturning of the nearly 50-year-old Roe ruling. However, pro-life activists hope to add further victories in defense of life and family in other fields. 
Three days after the June 24th Supreme Court ruling, Alabama's Republican Attorney General Steve Marshall filed with the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in an attempt to have a state bill protecting children from this gender transitioning go back into effect after pro-abortion and pro-LGBT advocates fought against the bill. Alabama's Vulnerable Child Compassion and Protection Act, SB 184, was signed into law by State Governor Kay Ivey in early April this year. Under its terms, providing gender transitioning drugs such as puberty blockers and performing transitioning surgery on children are prohibited. The law penalizes any individual, including doctors, who either prescribe or administer such drugs, handing out a 10-year jail term and a fine of $15,000. However, on May 13th, the Trump-appointed U.S. District Judge Lyles Burke issued a temporary injunction on parts of the act after it took effect on May 8th when the Southern Poverty Law Center, SPLC, and others sued to block it. The U.S. Justice Department also joined in the suit, saying that the act constituted a, quote, alleged denial of the equal protection of the laws under the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution on account of sex, unquote. Other anti-family advocates opposing the law included the GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders and the National Center for Lesbian Rights. Following this opposition, on June 27th, Attorney General Marshall filed a brief with the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, drawing heavily from the Supreme Court's decision which overturned Roe. As noted by the Family Research Council, Attorney General Marshall's argument drew heavily from a line on page 2 of the ruling, which reads, The court finds that the right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. Unquote. Attorney General Marshall referenced Dobbs repeatedly throughout his arguments, and the phrase, deeply rooted, taken from the Supreme Court, is common in his text. Quote, but no one, adult or child, has a right to transitioning treatments that is deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition, he wrote. Transitioning treatments are neither deeply rooted nor implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, he added. In granting the injunction against the act, Judge Burke had given the appearance of defending parental rights, saying that it, quote, likely violates a fundamental right of parents to treat their children with transitioning medications and likely constitutes an unlawful sex-based classification, unquote. The opponents to the act also argued that parents have a, quote, fundamental right to treat their children with transitioning medications subject to medically accepted standards, unquote. Yet Attorney General Marshall rebuffed this, using Dobbs, saying that, quote, the court identified no evidence that such a purported right is deeply rooted in our history or traditions, much less that the Constitution outsources the parameters of such a right to medical interest groups, unquote. Attorney General Marshall continued, writing that, 
Courts are in one accord that there is no personal substantive due process right for anyone, adult or child, to obtain medical treatments deemed dangerous or experimental by the government. So there is no reason to think that parents have a right to obtain those same treatments for their children. Unquote. Indeed, the reliance on the Dobbs ruling in Attorney General Marshall's brief appears not to be merely circumstantial, but one born out of a conviction of the pro-life and pro-family cause. Hours after Dobbs, with the Roe decision overturned, Marshall issued a statement praising the overturning of the fatally flawed decision of Roe v. Wade, noting that, quote, the state of Alabama has unequivocally elected to be the protector of unborn life, unquote. Following the Supreme Court's decision, a federal court removed an injunction on the state's 2019 pro-life laws making abortion at any stage of pregnancy a Class A felony, the highest kind. The punishment ranges from 10 years in jail to life imprisonment. However, certain exceptions do remain, meaning that abortions are permitted when deemed to be, quote, necessary in order to prevent a serious health risk to the unborn child's mother. Both the federal district court and the plaintiffs recognize that there is no basis for a continued stay of a duly enacted law in light of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, wrote Attorney General Marshall, announcing the news. Thus, Alabama's law making elective abortions a felony is now enforceable, unquote. Welcoming Attorney General Marshall's brief, the Family Research Council wrote that he had taken, quote, full advantage of the Supreme Court's decision to cede power to set abortion policy back to the states, unquote. Marshall's office, quote, has taken the court's logic and transferred to a new application, the defense of the state's compelling interest in protecting children from dangerous experimental treatments, added the group. Nor is Alabama alone in proposing such legislation to protect children from the dangers of transgender surgery. In May 2021, Tennessee imitated Arkansas by banning transgender drugs for children, and only recently, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey prohibited such transgender surgeries for children, calling the move common sense. Aside from the denial of objective and genetic reality, puberty-blocking drugs have been described as child abuse by Dr. Quentin Van Meter, the president of the American College of Pediatricians. He described puberty blockers as the start of a conveyor belt, which carries children, quote, down the assembly line to cross sex hormones, and then at the end have an option to do surgery to mutilate their bodies to appear like the opposite sex, unquote. As for the side effects of such drugs, osteoporosis, Kidney damage, heart damage, brain damage, and mood imbalances are documented risks. Sterility can also occur when puberty blockers are joined with cross-sex hormones. But Dr. Van Meter warned that while the damaging effects are known in adults, the long-term damage the drugs will cause to children is not fully understood since, quote, 
there has been no long-term study to look at this. Unquote. Just as Roe v. Wade opened the legal door to the sexual revolution, the Alabama case shows that Dobbs can serve to close it. Many people within America's public, private, and parochial schools see them as places to spread deviant ideologies. The focus of many of these efforts has been the school libraries. They know that they can use books to instill their ideas in children's minds without worrying about inconvenient parents. Or so they thought. Across the nation, parents are involving themselves in heroic efforts to remove obscene materials. Mr. Edwin Benson describes one ongoing struggle in his essay, Parents Win Battles to Remove Obscene Materials from School Libraries. The current controversy over graphic and obscene content in school libraries is deadly serious. Just ask the superintendent of schools in Prosper, Texas. A recent article in the Wall Street Journal... Texas District Spars Over Bid to Remove Books, July 1, 2021, spotlighted this conflict, mirrored in school districts nationwide. Parents are getting more involved in making their schools morally safe for their children. The entrance of massive amounts of woke and graphic material is making their job difficult. However, parents are fighting back and winning much to the chagrin of woke administrators. Not long ago, school librarians accepted the idea that one of their most important tasks was to protect children's innocence. Until recently, parents sent their children to school with the trust that the library would not be a corrupting influence. There are enough books in the world that children can learn all they need without being exposed to evil. Under such circumstances, filtering out books with harmful and inappropriate messages was part of the school librarian's job. Indeed, children's book publishers did not release such books, fearing a backlash from their best customers. In today's world, such care is no longer taken. Now there is a woke attempt to corrupt children. Innocence appears not to be in the modernist vocabulary. That is the only possible explanation for the American Library Association's attitude toward drag queen story hours and their eagerness to expose children to graphic images and immoral topics that children cannot possibly understand. Fortunately, parents have awakened to the reality of these efforts, and the left is taking notice. One so-called free speech advocacy group, PEN America, admits that school districts nationwide have removed over 1,100 books from school libraries in the last year. Such a conflict is raging within the Prosper Independent School District. Prosper is located at the northern fringe of the Dallas-Fort Worth-Arlington metropolitan area. Like many parts of the Lone Star State, it is growing rapidly. Its population tripled between 2010 and 2020. With 17 new housing developments in the planning stages, that growth won't stop soon. I have never been to Prosper, but I have spent much time in school libraries. I spent many high school lunch periods there, preferring it to the din of the cafeteria. During my teaching career, 
I knew that being on good terms with the librarian could yield many benefits, so I always made an effort in that direction. The school librarians I knew were a mixed lot. Some treated the library's collection as though it was their own personal property. A couple of them were lazy teachers looking for a nest. Some were ideologues. The ideologues are the most dangerous. Following the American Library Association's lead, they see their job as a cultural balancing point. This tendency is especially strong among school librarians in rural areas, who sometimes appoint themselves as the agents of change in their communities. In many such rural districts, the decisions of individual librarians have the least oversight. Personnel at the district level is very small. No one is designated to spend any significant time supervising the books on the shelves. The Prosper School System's annual report shows that new elementary and high schools are currently under construction. Another three elementary schools, a middle school, and a high school are, quote, coming soon. So Superintendent Holly Ferguson is, no doubt, in a whirlwind of construction and hiring. A controversy over library books is the last thing that she needs. But that is precisely what Superintendent Ferguson has. She summed up the situation from her perspective for the Wall Street Journal. It's been a nightmare for two years. Politics has come in the classroom, and it never had any place in a school, unquote. When objectionable titles appeared in Prosper School's libraries, concerned parents formed the Prosper Citizen Group. They organized themselves as a political action committee, demanding that the books be removed. Superintendent Ferguson is not enamored with the group, its members, or its demands. The Educrats' fallback position stresses that they are the experts, the adults in the room, as it were. Quote, It's our job to worry about the children, Dr. Ferguson arrogantly told the Wall Street Journal. Their job is to worry about their child. They want to insert their political or religious beliefs on every child in this district. Unquote. The president of the parents' group responded, This disturbing push to sexualize kids or defend those who do looks and feels like a cultural Marxist attack on our children, our town, and the next generation. And we will not stand for it. While the superintendent wants the whole controversy to disappear, the politics of the left will probably force her to sustain the librarian's bad decisions. If she does anything else, her name ends up on a list of book banners. She might even find herself pit against woke opinion, the American Library Association, the teachers' unions, and most likely the local media. The effects on her career path could be immense. At the same time, the parents will not let her ignore the issue. And they are right to act as they are. The success of parents in removing the 1,100 titles shows that resistance is possible. When alert parents protest at school board meetings, and even threaten to read the objectionable book aloud, 
officials take notice, and the books disappear. However, it is a constant battle, since the left is constantly probing defenses to find ways to reach the children with their message. All teachers and administrators must protect the innocence of those confided to their care. They must not scandalize the most vulnerable members of our society. Our Lord Jesus Christ declares that, And whoever shall scandalize one of these little ones that believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone be hanged around his neck and he were cast into the sea. See St. Mark, chapter 9, verse 41. This concludes, We Can All Fight to Keep Christianity in American Culture. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2022 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.